Well, hello, friends, wherever you are. This is week two of our series, In the Moment, and we've been looking at the moments leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus through the eyes of the Apostle Peter. Now, obviously, with the whole coronavirus situation, things are a little bit topsy-turvy, things are a little bit different, things are a little bit weird, but uh, we felt it was really important to keep looking at these particular passages to help prepare us as a community for Easter, whatever that might look like. We wanted to invest our time in these passages that we had been working on for many months so that we as a community could continue to understand the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, that doesn't just mean our preaching team, though. Our staff team has been working so hard to make sure that all of the content and curriculum that was planned for our children and our students is being made available to you as families. Uh, and so I've, I just got to say, before we dive into the message, how proud I am of our staff for how they have turned on a dime and they're working incredibly, incredibly hard to make sure that you as your families are able to continue learning about Jesus and continue uh, growing in your faith. So um, if you see or any of them online or if you want to interact with them, give them some, some, some praise, some thumbs up. Our staff has been amazing. By the way, you can find all those resources on our website or if you're signed up on our email list for children and students, you'll start getting those as well. Okay. So we're going to keep digging into these passages, and I think what we're going to see as we look at these next few weeks is that they have a lot to teach us, even in the midst of these very unprecedented times. Uh, today's story is a perfect example of that. Uh, today, we're looking about the, the, the moment where Jesus is praying in the garden and Peter and the other disciples are falling asleep. We're going to see that in times of crisis, our true motivations are tested. They're, they're put to the test. And for Peter... We're about, what we're about to read is the beginning of his discovery that he was not at, as, at all as all in as he thought he was. But before we dive in, if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to pray for all of us, uh, and let's do that right now. So Father God, thank you for the incredible technology that we are able to access to be able to worship together at a distance. We are so grateful that you've made this possible. Um, and, but Father, I also pray, uh, knowing right now that our community is in a lot of uncertainty and fear and, and uh, pain, I pray that your healing hand would come in a powerful way to heal our community, to heal our nation, to rid this world of this coronavirus. And I pray for anyone who's watching who is a, a, alone or feeling uh, scared or isolated, I pray, Father, that you would bring a comforting touch to their heart right now as we open up your word. So, Father, guide uh, me as I speak, and I pray, Father, that anything I say, that I would disappear and that your Holy Spirit would remain. That's my prayer for the time that we have together. So, I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we are going to be in Matthew 26, Matthew 26, starting in verse 30. So I'd love it, wherever you are, if you could uh, turn in your Bible to that. We're going to be reading from the New Living Translation, but pretty much any translation would work if you have a Bible. Uh, it'll be good so that you can follow along. By the way, is this kind of creepy or what? Because I'm like making eye contact with you all the time. I wonder, is that too intense? Should I look away? I'll look away. Just kidding. We'll, we'll, we'll keep at it. What, whatever. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26. And while you're turning there, let me kind of catch you up if you, didn't, uh, if you weren't here or tuned in last week. Uh, let me remind you of where we've been so far. So last week, we talked all about the Last Supper. Uh, Peter and the other apostles were plunged into this 
craziness, honestly, where Jesus is washing their feet and he's serving them this bread and this wine, which represents his body and his blood. I mean, it's, it's intense. It's, it's kind of weird and provocative. And for the disciples, it raised all kinds of questions. Uh, it raised questions that made their heads spin. So that's exactly what, that's what happened. And now we're about to see what happened immediately after that. So they're completely still reeling from this wild dinner. And then it says this in verse 30. This is at the end of the the Last Supper. Then they sang a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. On the way, Jesus told them, Tonight, all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. And Peter declared, Even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. Okay, let's stop here for for a moment and just try to imagine this scene together. Try to put your, your mind's eye to imagining what it would have been like. Again, the disciples, their heads are reeling, their heads are spinning, and now they're leaving Jerusalem. They're, they're heading down the eastern slope of the mountain that Jerusalem is on, and they're going up another slope, which is the Mount of Olives, into this garden. And it's probably, it's, it's nighttime, the moon might, maybe was out. I don't know, just try to use your imagination. So they're all walking together, and it's, it's while they're walking that Jesus tells them that tonight— you are all going to desert me. Wow, ouch, right? That, that's, that's a painful thing to hear from your, your rabbi, from your leader. I, I'm not going to desert you, Jesus, right? That would, I would immediately be defensive, wouldn't you? You know, they're his, his disciples. They're his crew. They're not about to tuck tail and run after all they've been through, are they? You can imagine their, their turmoil in this. And of course, Peter who if you read the Gospels, you realize he's pretty hot-headed, pretty optimistic. He kind of butts right in with whatever he's feeling at any given moment. He says this, he says, no, Jesus, look, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm not going to betray you. Even if all these other guys desert you, I never will. I never will. He's totally sure of himself. And this, by the way, this is not the first time that the disciples have been overly confident. Just a few chapters before this, uh, James and John, who are part of Jesus's inner circle, Peter, James, and John were kind of like his closest three friends. Those were his best friends. These two, they wanted to be Jesus's right-hand guys when he was on the throne of the kingdom. They still didn't get it. They didn't understand what this kingdom was going to be. Uh, actually, okay, they wanted it, but it was their mom who actually asked, right? Her, the mom was like, hey, can, will you get my sons the, the seat uh, to, the, to your right and left? I want to make sure that they're your right-hand guys. And, and you know, I get it, right? My mom told me that I was the handsomest kid in school. We all know moms can be a little optimistic, but, but this is what Jesus tells those disciples in verse 22 of, of chapter 20. He says, uh, Jesus answered them by saying to them, you don't even know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? I love their reply. They say, oh yes, oh yes, we are able. <laughs> Yeah, we're totally able to drink the cup of suffering. Totally. Yep, sure. That's it. We're in. We're, we can do whatever you need. I call this youthful arrogance. I, I don't know. Call this confidence. But ultimately, what this is, it's proof that the disciples did not really understand at all what was about to happen. And it's the same thing that we see here with Peter on the way to the Mount of Olives. 
And by the way, that cup of suffering that I just read, I just mentioned, that's going to be important in a moment. We'll come back to that. So again, okay, imagine the scene. The disciples, they're, they're confused, they're, they're, you know, full of confidence in their own abilities, but now Jesus is starting to question them. And, and on the way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus specifically calls out Peter because he's trying to be, you know, all bold and brash. And he tells Peter essentially, look, not only are you going to desert me, but you're going to deny that you even know me. That's what he tells Peter. Three times you're going to do this. Three times. And again, Peter's response, you can imagine, no, no, Jesus, you're wrong. You're wrong. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never desert you. Far from it. I never could do that. Now, the thing I love about the Apostle Peter is that in so many ways, he is just like us. He's just like us. I I mean, think about it. How many of us talk a big game about our faith? right? We, we, we talk about our commitment to, to God and our commitment to the church. We tell everybody that it's the most important thing in our lives, but I wonder, when push comes to shove, when, when a crisis hits our lives, when we are given the choice between trusting God in the midst of a crisis or relying on our own self-sufficiency, how many of us, really, honestly, how many of us are actually going to stand our ground? We're just like Peter. We're just like him. Even if everyone else deserts you, Jesus, I never will. Hmm. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 36. So they get there down the mountain, or they're walking up the Mount of Olives, and then it says this. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, his inner circle, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and he bowed his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and he found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you keep watch with me for even just one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and he prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same thing again. Then he came to his disciples disciples, and he said, all right, go ahead and sleep. Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. This is a very powerful story. It's a powerful moment in this whole gospel story. And, and it's for two reasons it's powerful. At least I, I see it that way. Number one, I think it's powerful because this story gives us a pretty unique glimpse into the inner life of Jesus, to the, to the you know, feelings and emotions that he's feeling. What is, he, what is he thinking? We get to see because these are the words that he's sharing between him and his father. Remember, he is both fully God and fully man. And so in this moment, what we're seeing is is his deeply human anguish at the price he's about to pay. 
In his prayer, he, he says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Now in this, he's actually using a Greek word. He's, he's quoting, uh, it's, it's the Greek word paralupos, which is the same Greek word in the, trans, the Greek translation of Psalm 42, which he would have been very familiar with. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Paralupos, it's the same word. So he's doing something important here. Obviously, he's showing he knows scripture. He speaks with scripture in his mind, but he's quoting the psalmist intentionally. Because when you look through the Bible at this kind of of anguish, this kind of, of distress, this is not just ordinary sadness. This isn't just, you know, oh man, I'm really bummed. No, no, this is the cry, specifically the cry of a godly person who is staring directly in the face of the brokenness of our world. That's what it is in Psalm 42. That's what it is here. This is not just the anguish of one man. This, in other words, this is the anguish of the people of God. Those who follow God who have to live in this still broken world. My soul is crushed with grief. Now, Jesus also taps into another Old Testament idea here when he mentions this cup of suffering. You can find references to this cup, often called the cup of God's wrath or the cup of judgment as well. You can find it in Isaiah 51, in Jeremiah 25, but also in the Psalms. And let me give you that example. Psalm 75, verse 8 says, The Lord holds a cup in his hand that's full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours out the wine in judgment and all the wicked must drink it, drinking, draining it to the dregs. Now this cup of suffering represents, in, in, in short, the consequences of humanity's rebellion. This cup represents the inevitable death that our sinful choices bring into this world. Like when we choose our own path, we talked a lot about the two paths uh, in our last sermon series. When we sin, by choosing something other than God, it's as if we are drinking deeply from this this rich, foaming wine. Now, of of course, at first, it looks enticing. This looks like a really delicious drink, but the more we drink of it, the more we drink this cup of, of suffering, the more we can't stop. We just keep drinking it. Our thirst is insatiable. We, we start to stagger and sway in our sin. We're unable to break free of sin's consequences. Our mind, our judgment starts to get clouded. We drink our fill and it destroys us. That's what this imagery uh, brings to mind. This cup of God's judgment. This is a powerful image of the chaos and the disorder that sin brings to life. And yet now, Now, in this story, Jesus, who never sinned, remember, who who only brought life into this world, is now going to have to drink every last drop. Jesus is going to be consumed by the consequences of sin. Not just death, that's only a part of it, no, but actual separation from God. He's going to drink the cup of suffering. No wonder he wants it to be taken away. He wonders if there's any other way out of this. No wonder his soul is downcast, crushed to the point of death. It's a bitter cup to drink. So, that, to me, is the first reason why this story is so powerful, because we get to see a glimpse into the the, the inner life of Jesus as he is wrestling with what is about to happen to him as he drinks in God's judgment for things that he never did. And yet, notice this. Fully human Jesus, notice this. 
we see his full humanity on display, and yet in the midst of his fear, in the midst of his fear, we see him choosing to trust in God completely. I want your will to be done, not mine. Wow. Even in his anguish, he's an example to us. I find that beautiful. Okay, by the way, that, that cup of suffering, it's the same cup that the disciples bragged that they were going to be able to drink with Jesus. Remember that? And they can't do that. They can't drink this cup. It's not possible. In fact, that actually brings to light the second most important, most powerful part of this whole story. You see something contrasted here between Jesus and the disciples. What you see in this garden prayer is Jesus' deep trust and the disciples' deep failure. You see their failure because they couldn't even stay awake for long enough to support their grieving friend. What happens to Peter and James and John in the garden, it's a foreshadowing of what's about to come. It's a glimpse at, at what kinds of things are going to happen once Jesus begins to go to, his, go to the, the cross. This is the moment that things are just about to get real and the disciples can't keep their eyes open. You'll notice in verse 40, if you look, uh, that even though Jesus is talking to all three of them, the, the verbs are plural, he addresses his questions to Peter. Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Peter, you'll remember, was the one boasting on the way to the garden that he would die for Jesus. Now he can't even fight sleep to lend his, his best friend moral support. And pretty soon it's going to get a lot worse because Peter was going to deny that he even knew Jesus. By the way, this is why Jesus tells Peter to keep watch and pray so that he won't give in to temptation. He says, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Now in Greek, the word body, it, it, it literally is flesh. The word, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It means more than just your physical body. It also means your humanness, your human nature, your human capacities and limitations, your body, your flesh. So yes, Jesus is talking about the fact that they're not able to, to stay awake, their body is weak, but, but you know, it's a long emotional day, I get that, but that's not the only thing he's talking about here. No, even though Peter's spirit is willing, it's got high expectations about how faithful he's going to be, his human nature, his body, his flesh, it's weak. It's not going to stand up to the test. As we know, Peter's body is going to come up short. This moment in the garden, as I've said, it was only a foreshadowing. It's just a taste of what's to come. The following morning, Jesus, he was put on trial. Peter tags along in, you know, incognito, wraps himself in a blanket or something, we don't know, but he shows up in the outer courtyard as Jesus is inside being put to test by the high priest, and, and all of a sudden people start asking Peter, hey, weren't you, weren't you with Jesus? I think I saw you with that guy. And three times in a row, he tells them, I don't even know the guy. I don't even know him. Peter denied Christ. Rashful, boasting Peter. He tucked tail and ran. Now, stop for a moment, okay? We know how the whole story goes, but I just want to stop right there and just put yourself in Peter's mind for those days and hours after the crucifixion, but before the resurrection. I want you to put yourself in his, in his mind as he starts replaying the tapes from the days before as he starts thinking back on all the things he had just experienced and seen and felt and done. 
Put yourself in his mind. Think about it. All that confidence, all that bravado that he went into that weekend with and how quickly it all just fell apart. It all just crumbled. If you were Peter, how foolish would you feel in that moment? Imagine listening back in your mind's eye to the sounds of your best friend weeping and groaning in anguish and then remembering that you couldn't even bring yourself to stay awake to support him. You had to lay on the ground. You couldn't just walk around. Man, Jesus asked me to be there for him. And three times, three times I, I just let him go off and pray by himself. All those years I, I, I followed him. I was in his inner circle. But the moment the heat turned up, I fell apart. Three times I left him to weep alone. Three times I left him to die. Imagine how much those kinds of questions, those, those memories would shape who Peter became for the rest of his life. Imagine what he was thinking. And I know you can imagine this. I know you can because think about this. How much do your shameful memories shape you? Specifically regarding your faith. Like, like for example, the way that maybe you used to boast about your faith until that temptation came along and it dragged you down, it counted you out. Or that time that you were interacting with some people who didn't, didn't go to church and you were just a little too embarrassed about your faith to mention that you followed Jesus. Or more significantly, maybe that's that awful thing that you did way in your past, but you've been carrying it around like a badge of shame that you're not willing to let go of. You're not willing to let the love of Jesus penetrate through that, that mistake or those mistakes that you made. Or maybe that time, that time that th things got tough for you, Things got tough, you jumped into action, and you didn't even think to trust in God. You didn't even think to turn to Him. You went straight to your own abilities. Or maybe it's that time that you experienced great freedom in Jesus. You were free, you, you were free, and then you, you went right back to that addiction again. These, these are the kinds of memories that make us question our faith. That make us wonder if we're, if we're even worthy to call ourselves a Christian at all. These are the moments that make us think, okay, the love of God, maybe it applies to everybody else, but I think I've lost that privilege. In some way, and I know not all of those relate to all of you, but in some way, I can guarantee that we all can relate to Peter in this moment. We have all failed Jesus in one way or another. We've all come up short. Our spirit is willing, but our body is weak, right? And more likely than not, as this has happened to us, we've asked the question, am I too far gone to come home? Have I crossed some threshold and I'm not allowed back anymore? Jesus groaning in anguish and us, like Peter, just a little too sleepy. Now, technically, we could end the story right there, pick it back up next week. I mean, that's, that's all that we have in the actual storyline and the narrative flow, but that's a pretty dark way to end a message, and I don't think we need darkness right now. I think maybe we need a little bit of light. What do you think? So I'm going to tell you uh, another sort of epilogue to this story because this epilogue suddenly changes the meaning of everything we just read. It redeems it in a really powerful way. 
So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Why don't, you, why don't you take a look with me? If you've got your Bible open, John 21, and we're going to start at verse 15. Now, this story takes place after Jesus has risen from the grave, okay? He's, he's met with his disciples. Peter has seen him already. They all know that he's alive. But he's kind of in this weird, mysterious time where he's showing up in different places and meeting different people, and sometimes they can't even tell if it's him. It's, it's, it's very odd. But at this point, Peter and some of the other disciples are out on the, the Sea of Galilee fishing, and Jesus shows up on the beach, and so they get real excited, and they go to sit down and have breakfast with him. It's this beautiful moment of reunion, and then Jesus has this private moment face-to-face with Peter, and this is what he says. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And we don't know whether that was a reference to the fish or to the disciples, but he's asking, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. Yeah, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, Peter was hurt that Jesus would ask this question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You you know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. In this moment, Jesus is calling Peter to a deep an important task. On the way to the garden, if you remember, uh, on the way to the garden where Jesus prayed, he tells his disciples that, that, you know, if you strike the shepherd, the sheep are going to be scattered. Do you remember that? Well, now he's telling Peter, Peter, I want you to be the shepherd now. I want you to lead my followers. I want you to lead the church. You can imagine what Peter's thinking in this moment. You can kind of imagine some of his inner turmoil. I'm not worthy. I denied you, Jesus. I'm a a failure. I am a failure. I'm not even, how is he asking so many times whether I love him or not, right? He had to ask me three times. Three times. He asked me three times. I, I left him to weep and pray alone three times. I I denied him three times. And three times he's calling me back. You see, this was not a coincidence. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. For Peter, this call, these these three questions, this was a moment to heal. This was a moment of forgiveness. A moment of grace where where Jesus called Peter to a greater purpose, but not in spite of his mistakes, not in spite of his failure, but through it, through it. It's as if Jesus said, Peter, yes, yes, you failed. You did. You messed up, but you're here. I don't want you because of your perfection. I want you for your love. And the very fact that you failed means that you are exactly the right person to tell the world about my grace. In this moment, Peter, the one who literally abandoned Jesus at the crucifixion, who let him suffer alone in the garden, that same Peter became the bedrock foundation upon which the entire church was built. 
Peter was the leader that Christ chose to take his mission of love to the world. And in that moment, Peter became the first of many who find themselves called by God, not in spite of their brokenness, but through it, through grace, through healing, through forgiveness. You know who that includes? That includes you and it includes me. This is my story too. Now, every one of us has a different story. We all have different experiences. We all face different kinds of brokenness in our lives. You may may be in a point where you feel unworthy because of your past, right? That could be you. Or maybe you feel like you're just not so sure. Your faith, it feels uh, shallow and fragile. Or, okay, or maybe you feel like you're just rock solid and you're unshakable in your faith. Even if everyone else denies you, I won't, right? Maybe that's you and you just haven't gone through the ringer yet to find out whether that's true. Regardless of where you are, regardless of where you are in your faith, let me tell you this, Peter's story, from his failure to his redemption to his call, all of that represents every one of us. Jesus calls me and he calls you to a life of purpose, of destiny. He offers you salvation from the brokenness that you've brought into this world. Not when you've got everything all figured out and put together. No, not, not in spite of all of your mess. No, he calls you through it. Through it. You're imperfect? Fine. Fine. Do you trust God enough to call you beyond yourself? Okay, you've spread death into the world? Okay. Are you ready to start spreading life? Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Do you love him? Because if you do, great. Feed his sheep. 